Turn me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3, which you can find on page 944 in your pew Bible, 944. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. He follows the book of Mike, or the book of Zephaniah, rather. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and then Malachi and the New Testament. So page 944, we're going to read all of chapter 3, a passage we've referenced before, but now we'll read. In the light of what it is that we confess concerning the justice and mercy of God in Christ. And we see here a court scene where justice is demanded and mercy is provided. So Zechariah 3, beginning at verse 1. Then he showed me, the, showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then to the Belgian Confession and now Article 20. Article 20, dealing with the justice and mercy of Christ. That's page 173 in your Forms and Prayers books, 173, 174, page 862 in the Trinity. And we're continuing in our study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We started that already in Article 17. We've seen about Jesus' incarnation, that he is both God and man. One person, two natures. And now we see about the justice and mercy of God and their unity, their harmony in Jesus Christ. We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and also very just, sent his Son to assume the nature in which the disobedience had been committed in order to bear in it the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. So God made known his justice toward his son who was charged with our sin and he poured out his goodness and mercy on us who are worthy or who are guilty and worthy of damnation giving to us his son to die by a most perfect love and raising him to live for our justification in order that by him we might have immortality and eternal life as the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, I think that in the main, most of us 
given the option between justice and mercy, would choose mercy. That is, if we're being pulled over by a police officer for speeding, we don't want him to stick to the letter of the law. We don't want him to write exactly the the fine that we deserve. We want him to let us go with a warning this time, to be merciful. Or our employer, when we come to work that morning and we're a little bit late, and, and maybe it's been the third, fifth, or tenth time we were late, and we know that there's every reason for our employer to fire us on the spot, to say no more. But we hope that he's kind. We hope that he's merciful. Of course, there are other times where we want justice and not mercy. Not usually for ourselves, but for other people. Maybe somebody has come onto our property or into our home and stolen something, has violated our secure space, and now they're hauled before the magistrate. They're standing in court. And what do we want the judge to do? We want the judge to be merciful in that moment? Usually not. We come demanding justice. And the point of this is not to berate us for either option, but rather to note that we usually think of justice and mercy in these twofold ways. It's either one or the other. It's sort of a binary thing. Either you get justice or you get mercy. You can't get both. And, and indeed, how could you? I mean, justice is getting what you deserve for good or for ill. Justice is certainly punishing the criminal by putting them in jail or assigning the appropriate fine. But it is also just to let the innocent party go free. When we are innocent and accused of something we haven't done, then we really want the judge to be just. Because justice means we'll go free. We'll be released. And mercy, mercy is what is undeserved. Mercy is given because you cannot earn it. Mercy is precisely mercy because it is given as a gift. So justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. How can those things ever find harmony? How can those things ever come together? And for many, even in the Christian faith, this is the case. Justice is clearly what we deserve from God for our sins. Justice is, would be God's condemning us, God's sending us to everlasting damnation, God's punishing us in this life and in the life to come. Remember, God's justice also operates in this life. And so as sinners, as those who rebel against God, we know or we sense that we deserve something from God less than good. We deserve something difficult, something demanding. But what we want, what we plead with God for is mercy. We say, have mercy upon me. Don't don't treat me the way my sins deserve. Treat me kindly. And then we can imagine, we can think to ourselves that what God does is he says, okay, well, I, I should give this person mercy, or justice rather. And the justice means that they should suffer this, and they should suffer that, and they should suffer the next thing. But I'm just going to put that aside. I'm going to take that. I'm going to put that over here. And I'm instead going to come and give them mercy, something altogether different. Forget about the justice. We'll leave the justice over there. But I'll give you mercy. You don't deserve it. I shouldn't do it. But I'm going to do it because I'm a merciful God. So often that's how we think of the mercy of God, as putting away His justice over here, not paying attention to that, but being kind to you, though you don't deserve it. That'd be a very poor way to think about the justice and mercy of God, a very contradictory to the Scripture's way to think about the justice and mercy of God, and a less than comforting way to think about the justice and mercy of God. After all, don't you ever have those moments where you think, oh no, I've done it again. 
I've done that thing that I promised God I was never going to do. The last time I did it, I knew that, that God would have no reason to forgive me, but I said, Lord, give me mercy, give me grace, just don't treat me the way my sins deserve, and he was kind, and he did it, and now I've done it again. I lost my temper again. I, got, uh, I, I lusted after someone I shouldn't have again. I, I, I cheated my boss again. And now we think to ourselves, well, now, now God's going to, He's not going to put away that justice. He's going to take it up. And not just the justice of what we deserve in that moment. He's going to pick up all that stuff that He left behind before. All that stuff that He gave us mercy for instead of justice. He's going to give us the whole shooting match. We're going to get the entire wrath of God against sin. And so we fear. We tremble. We doubt. We think there's no way that God's going to be nice to us now. Not after the tenth time we've committed the same sin. And that kind of fear, that kind of uncertainty, that kind of doubt is a product of bad theology and is inconsistent with what the Belgic Confession teaches us about the justice and mercy of God with the Word of God, what Zechariah 3 teaches us about the justice and mercy of God. For the Belgic Confession does remind us that indeed God is just. Indeed, for most of us, I hope, This is basic theology. This is Theology 101. We know that God is just. We know that God is the God who condemns sin in all of its forms and demands satisfaction for that sin. That is something that is evident throughout all of Scripture. From beginning to end, we see how sin incurs judgment. God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat, but the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And what happens? They eat and then they suffer a great deal, don't they? They die spiritually and ultimately physically. And he says to Cain, don't don't do what is wrong. Do what is right and I'll be happy with you. And Cain kills his brother and God puts a mark on him and sends him away. The soul that sins shall die, says the Lord in Ezekiel. Indeed, throughout the Scripture it is made clear that God is a God of justice And as a God of justice, will not allow one iota of His law's demand to be overlooked, to be forgotten about, to be unsatisfied. God demands justice. And indeed, it is precisely because God demands such justice that Jesus came in the flesh. This is the only explanation we can offer for Jesus' incarnation. There are others who try to argue different reasons, to be sure. Some have argued that Jesus came in order that we could, in order to change us, in order to change our attitude or change our activity and bring us into communion with God. Others have argued that Jesus came essentially to convince us that God is a God of love. And that we don't need to be afraid of Him. We can run to Him and He'll be kind to us. There have been all sorts of explanations in the history of the church for why Jesus came. And the more of the modern a theory, the more likely it is to deny that Jesus came to die upon the cross to pay the great weight of God's wrath against sin. More modern theories emphasize the love of God and the fact that God is so kind and gracious and don't worry, He'll let it go. They are inclined to move the focus of Jesus' sacrifice from the presence of God to the heart of man. They want you to feel good about yourself. And Jesus' coming is less about satisfying the wrath of God and more about inspiring scared people. 
And it's not surprising, I think, why such approaches to the atonement of our Savior would be appealing to the hearts of our fellow men. Indeed, in the context in which we currently minister and live in our culture, we note that no one really likes the idea of God's justice. I mean, just think, for example, about the presentation of God in popular culture in movies like Bruce Almighty or books like The Shack or On and On It Goes, where he's a wizened old man, he's a wizened old woman, he's friendly, he's not into judgment, he's into accepting people the way they are. Indeed, this is one of those accusations that is thrown against the faithful and orthodox church of Jesus Christ, that they present God as far too angry, far too nitpicky, far too cruel. And where that presentation of the justice and judgment of God against sin is heard clearly, it is not surprising that more people want to attend those churches where Jesus is, or the portrait rather of God, is a little more inviting. God loves you just the way you are. God doesn't make mistakes, and you're certainly not one. And God wrote you a love letter that you might know how precious you are. We are constantly pumping up and filling the hearts and minds of men with their own value rather than the wonder of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, there is an element of truth to all of this talk of God's love, obviously, without question. But that wonderful element gets eroded and cheapened and ultimately emptied of meaning if we don't remember the truth of God's justice. For an unjust God is a comfort to no one. There used to be, when I was a little bit younger, a couple of guys who were the driving instructors or driving examiners in St. Catharines, there on Welland Ave. Two guys that you would have to get, one or the other, to do your driver's exam. One of them was a guy whose name I don't remember. We're going to call him Ted. The other guy, the reason we're calling him Ted is because I remember the name of the other guy, although it wasn't his name, it's what we called him. We called him Slick. Had to do with the way he held his hair. But Slick always let people get their driver's license. You could do just about anything. You could hit somebody and Slick would give you your driver's license. You couldn't parallel park, don't worry, Slick will give it to you. You wanted to get Slick as the guy coming into the car because he gave everybody a pass. I happen to mention that once to the driving instructor that I had, this lady that was teaching me to drive. I said, oh, I hope I get slick. And she says, no, you don't. I said, what do you mean I don't? I don't want Ted. Ted's good, tough. He's demanding. I want slick. He's easy. He'll give it to me easy. And she said, you don't want slick because here's the thing. Slick can be in a bad mood. And he's, if he's in a bad mood, you could be the best driver on the planet. He's not going to pass you. You can get into that car, and if he doesn't like you, he's going to fail you no matter how good you are. Ted? You have to be a good driver. It's true. You've got to be a good driver to pass Ted's exam. But if he gives you a pass, it's because you can drive. It doesn't matter whether he likes you, doesn't like you, he's going to give you what you deserve. He's not going to give you what you want. Now you think to yourself, why wouldn't we want a guy? Why wouldn't we want a God who isn't just, who leaves off justice, isn't like Ted at all? He's like Slick reason is because slick might just be in a bad mood today. God might just not like you today. 
God may just decide that he's going to punish you today. A God that isn't just is a God you can't trust, is a God that does whatever he wants, when he wants, and there's no rhyme or reason to what he does. You might get a happy God today. You might get an angry God tomorrow. A just God provides stability, provides confidence, provides security. You know exactly what a just God is going to do. How about you say, wait a second, That's the problem, isn't it? If we have a just God, I know exactly what He's going to do. He's going to condemn me because I'm a sinner. I'm wicked. I've failed in so many many ways. That's why we don't like thinking about God's justice. We don't like thinking about how God can see our wickedness. I mean, just go back to the garden and how man covered himself in leaves and hid behind trees and all of the guilt and shame he experienced. He didn't want to see God, the God of justice, the God of whom we just sang, the God who is holy, holy, holy. We want to put all of our guilt and shame on other people. It's, it's you who make me feel bad. It's, it's you who have, have, have caused me to be angry or to be bitter or to be whatever. But we don't want to ever have to face the truth that we are the ones in need or we are the ones rather who have committed the sin and we are the ones who must satisfy the justice of God against sin. That's the terrifying thought, isn't it? Because the justice of God that demands satisfaction that does not allow for excuses is a justice that we cannot pay. We may think that our sins aren't a big deal. We may think that they don't face such a severe judgment But the truth is, our sins are an affront to the mighty God. They are an assault on His glory. They are a rejection of His existence. When we sin, we say to God, You may be the one who made me and to whom I owe my allegiance, but I refuse to accept You. I refuse to acknowledge You. I refuse to believe You. Every time we sin, we live out the devil's lie that we can be free from God's claim over us. And when you make an assault on God, what response should a just God give you except the most severe and serious of consequences, an eternal experience of judgment and justice? Indeed, unless that justice, that wrath of God that takes an eternity to satisfy, unless that justice is satisfied, there is no hope of salvation or security in this life. That's why we're so afraid of the justice of God. That's why we don't want to talk about the justice of God. We don't want to hear about sin. We don't want to hear about God's anger against our sin. But the truth is, we need to know about God's justice. Some of us need to know it because we're denying it right now. We're living in sin. And we think that God's okay with it. We think that our lifestyle, which is rebellious, you know, what we did last night, what we did Friday night, whatever it is that we did at our job, the way that the time we spend on our phones, whatever, the way that we live our lives, we think that God's okay with it. And He's not. He's a God of justice. And He demands that we live pure and holy lives before His throne of grace. If we are engaged in pornography and sexual immorality and drugs and in drinking, and thinking that that's okay, and that if we go to church on Sunday, we can feel better about ourselves because we're all forgiven and we can just continue living our lives the way we want the rest of the week, then we have misunderstood the truth of who God is. We wonder then, we, or then we will find ourselves ultimately in a pointless and empty existence while others seem to make progress 
and we persist in the cycle of sinfulness. The reason why we end up in such misery is because we've forgotten that God is a God of justice and that our sin deserves judgment and that we cannot wipe away that stain no matter how hard we try. But it is precisely when we get to that point that we begin to experience the good news of the gospel. Because talking about God's justice may be contrary to our desire, but we defy reality if we fail to acknowledge it. And we fall into the trap of the devil who wants to keep us from ever knowing the comfort and confidence of God's grace in Jesus Christ. That's what the Belgic Confession wants us to understand. It doesn't just want us to know that God is very angry with our sins, though it wants us to know that too. But it wants us to see how the love of God, the mercy of God, perfectly satisfies that justice so that we can have every confidence in the faithfulness of our God towards us. Again, the theology that's presented in the Belgic Confession in this article is fairly basic stuff. The Catechism, or the Confession rather, teaches us that God bore the wrath of God from the very moment of His conception to the moment of His death by His work, by His active obeying of His Father's will, of his, by His submitting to the judgment of God against our sin. Jesus both paid for our sins and clothed us who believe in His righteousness. Indeed, that's a testimony that Scripture gives clearly in so many passages. Just go back to Genesis 3 when God clothed Adam and Eve in garments of skin. Rethink of Zechariah 3, which we just read, and what happens to Joshua as he goes from this filthy stained garment to this glorious princely garment. And indeed, this is something that is made abundantly clear in the New Testament Think only of passages like Ephesians 2 where it speaks about what we should have received but what we received in Jesus Christ. Now, the the key in all of this, of course, is God's mercy. But a mercy, you need to understand, that satisfies His justice. You see, the mercy of God is to send His Son. The mercy of God is to send that Son to die for your sins. To die on the cross for your sins so that you never need to pay for those sins. That's the mercy of God. He didn't need to send His Son. He didn't need to include you in the number of those for whom He sent His Son to die. He doesn't need to do any of that for you. That He's done it is an act of mercy, of grace, of unmerited favor, of the greatest sort. You can never claim this gift, this blessing from God by right. God's mercy in Jesus Christ is the richest in all the world. But notice that Jesus comes to satisfy the justice of God for you. That is to say that God satisfies His justice through His mercy. So that in Jesus Christ, justice is paid and mercy is provided. There is perfect harmony between these two attributes of our God. God doesn't separate them. He doesn't say, okay, no justice. We'll put the justice over there and we'll give you mercy over here. He says, you know what? The mercy I'm going to give you will pay for your justice. will pay your debt. will pay the charge against you. will pay what you owe me. So that when Jesus cries out, it is finished, your payment of sin is finished. What you owe God is completed. And what you are given from God is grace. The mercy of God satisfies the justice of God. 
by sending the Son to die for our sins. And it is the mercy of God that gives us such hope and comfort. Now there is, of course, even in this, a great challenge that we sometimes forget. Because mercy, you understand, is not something you can earn. It's not something you can buy. It's not something you can demand. You can't insist that God be merciful to you. You can't do something that inclines Him to be merciful to you. After all, then it wouldn't be mercy anymore, would it? It would be justice. Giving people what they deserve is justice. Getting what you don't deserve is mercy. Which is what makes mercy so much harder to hang on to. Because mercy means we have to trust someone else. Someone we've offended. Someone who has every right to condemn us. Mercy means having no leverage. Having no trump card. Having no ability to say, well, I'll show you. Mercy means accepting we have every reason to be condemned. And the truth is, for us, that's the hardest thing to do. The truth is that by nature, we only really truly believe ourselves. That's what makes works righteousness so appealing. It puts control back into our own hands. All we have to do is punch our own ticket then, do our duty, show up to church, give in the offering, say a few prayers, and we're good to go. And you can know that you're going to be saved because you did it. We trust our own actions. And we think that in the day of judgment when we stand before God, we can say, look, I did good things. Assuming that's enough to gain us access to eternal life. Ask your neighbors. Ask your coworkers. Ask those that don't believe who you work with in this coming week who say, how was your weekend? And you say, you know what? I heard an interesting thing on Sunday. The pastor wants us to ask you, are you going to heaven? And if they say, well, yes, I think so. And then you say, how do you know? Invariably, the answer will be because I've done more good than bad. And that is a comfort to us. You can't get people to move off of that foundation because in the end, that's trusting ourselves. That's trusting our own ability. That, that's something that I can believe, that I can see and touch and feel. But God's mercy? God's mercy in Jesus Christ who came 2,000 years ago? That's what makes the gospel such a challenging word to embrace. It, it means turning away from ourselves and in our entirety, putting our trust, putting our lives, our eternity upon the foundation of a, of a person we read about in the Word of God. Think about how much our Savior suffered to satisfy our God's wrath against sin. Think about His satisfying grace for you. Don't think about anything else. Just think only of how much Jesus suffered for you. Not to make you feel bad. Not to induce some kind of guilt, humility. Quite the opposite. To show you how much the Lord has given for you. To show you that you are freely and fully saved. Think about how this mercy was promised long before it happened in the Garden of Eden. 
How this was not a decision of one day, of a sudden moving of compassion that you said the right thing in prayer and God said, fine, I'll save you. This was a commitment to you from before the foundations of the world that was played out for millennia. A commitment God's people forgot about, didn't trust and rejected, but that God kept. Just think about the fact that God planted the tree that would kill His Son and He gave life to the guards that would nail Him to it because He was so committed to saving you. There are some of us that need to hear the depths of this love, this mercy of God towards us. Some of us are facing challenges right now that are deep and profound. Maybe we're dealing with doubt. Maybe we're wrestling with uncertainty. The devil loves to raise fear in our hearts and to get us to question God's commitment to us. Maybe we've committed sins that we think are too offensive, too great for God to forgive. Maybe we think we're so unworthy that the Lord would never love us. The devil loves to stir these things in our hearts. Even as when we face the trials of life, when we face loss, when we face the darkness of loneliness, when we face the burdens of brokenness, of pain and sorrow and sickness, then the devil likes to say, see, God doesn't love you. God isn't here for you. God is making your life worse, not better. And these truths play upon our hearts and our minds. And we know that we're unworthy. We know that we're undeserving. We know that there's every reason for God to deal with us unkindly rather than kindly. But all we need to do is turn our hearts and our thoughts to the cross of Calvary in our darkest, rather, deepest, darkest hour. We just need to remember that the Son of God hung upon the cross. And there the mercy of God is for you on full display and the justice of God. For there God says, I'm paying for everything that you deserve so that I might embrace you in the arms of love. Our Savior satisfies the just anger of our God for our sins so that we might stand in the comfort and in the knowledge of His grace. Our sins are wicked, terrible, and beyond our ability to comprehend. The truth is God's mercy is greater. His love is deeper. And His commitment to us is more profound. And we ought to understand this wonderful truth better than anyone else. And indeed, it ought to change the way that we live our lives. This ought to profoundly change our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. When you realize every day that you deserve wrath, but that you are given love, That you deserve judgment, but that you were given blessings. That you deserve to be destroyed, but you have been lifted up for all eternity. Not for anything that you've done, but for everything He's done. And what is left for you to do? What is left for you to give? What is left for you to offer to God, the God who's done this? The answer is only thanksgiving and praise and gratitude. That really all you have to do for the rest of this week is take this message of hope and praise God for it. Praise Him at work. Praise Him at home. Praise Him in your marriage. Praise Him in your dating. Praise Him in your relationships. Praise Him in your thoughts. Praise Him in your prayers. Praise Him in everything you do. That's all that's left for us to do. 
to the God who is both just and merciful to us in Jesus Christ. And by His work brings justice and mercy in harmony so that they kiss. What have we to do but to say thank you? And so let us give our lives in gratitude to the Lord for this gift of grace. Let us recognize the depths of our deserving of judgment and the enormous heights of God's grace in mercy. Let us give our lives in gratitude to Him who has so saved us. Let's do that in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Son who so very perfectly satisfies our judgment against sin. We deserve wrath, Lord, we really do. And yet You give us grace. You give us mercy in Jesus Christ, satisfying Your own judgment so that we need never fear. There will never be a time when you take back what you have given. When you will say, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not forgiving you anymore. That's enough. No, you will always and forever give us in Jesus Christ what He has deserved for us, which is life and forgiveness and hope and, and peace. Lord, may that be our comfort each and every day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.